Okay, I have a lovely message I want to share with you. It's one of those ones that's kind of stirring in my heart. And it, it's, I want to communicate something that I think is a deep down foundational thing. So it's very difficult for me to know whether I'm going to get it right or not, whether I'll transfer this burden onto your heart or this conviction. But um, I want to speak about the house that God built for David. That's what I want to talk about this morning, the house that God built for David. And um, in this past uh, week, I've had an kind of interesting things happening in my life. We've been trying to organize uh, for some of us to get to South Africa from my family. Two of my boys are already there. Um, it isn't really home to us as a family. The boys came, the youngest, Evan, was two when he came to Madagascar. And he hasn't been back to South Africa for about 11 years. So he hasn't actually been out of the country anywhere for 11 years. Um, something like that. And, and we, we're not a patriotic family, so we don't have a whole lot of kind of uh, cultural, you know, entrenchment in South Africa. But we... We are South African, we can't deny that. Sometimes we feel like you have to apologize for that. Um, anyway, so my mom is now 79. She doesn't want anyone to come visit her when she turns 80 or next year when she goes through that milestone. She doesn't really want anyone to go to any trouble to visit her. And, um, but we're actually trying to get together with um, my mom and recent Evan who are going over to write exams and so Justin my other son, who's the second oldest, and myself are also going to fly over. I have to quite possibly go over to help sign for a passport for Evan so that he can one day come back again. Anyway, all these unique timings of these events made it possible for every midgley male descendant of my mother, who's the only one alive of my two parents, to meet in the same place at the same time, which will be the first time in over 10 years. And one of my brothers lives in Australia and the other one is emigrating from South Africa to the UK. So this is all, in all likelihood, the last time we will ever get together in this way. Um, so all, the, all my mom's three sons and all their sons, actually we only had sons, will be there. And, um, and I was thinking, why do we have this kind of, this urge to honor my mom and it's not about our family name or anything like that, but it's just the sense of we can have kind of three generations together and all her descendants in one place and just say happy, you know, 80th birthday, well in advance, hope you make it. Um, trust she will make it to 80. Right at the same time, in the last uh, two days, um, my dad's brother John passed away. He's um, my only, I mean, my, my dad's only brother, they were just two boys in the family and three girls. And, um, and, and my uncle John passed away just a couple of days ago, and he was 93 years old, which I think is quite a good innings, almost a century. Um, and it, it was his time. The incredible thing is, now the family is looking again and saying, yeah, the, the oldest Midgley relative has just passed away. And again, you're thinking like, Okay, what has God done? And I just want to tell you what God's done briefly. When my dad died 20 something years ago, it was way too soon. It seemed like he wasn't nearly old enough, but it was God's time to take him home. In the last year of my dad's life, he had become a believer for real. We saw the changes in his life. He became a Christian, he softened his, God softened his heart, everything changed. And um, at that time, my uncle John was 
maybe Anglican, but not really active in his faith. I wouldn't say he was a, a born-again kind of believer. But his sister was, and my uncle got so upset because his only brother had died young, 58. And he, he was devastated by what had happened. And in the midst of this tragedy, uh, he was getting angry and bitter because he blamed various people for his brother's death. And I was far too young to understand how those emotions could work or how seriously a person can feel hurt by death. And, uh, and, and so my uncle was, was really, really angry and becoming bitter. And his sister, who was a believer, she took him aside and started to minister to him and said, this will lead you nowhere healthy. You need to believe in Jesus, trust in him that you will be able to see your brother again and receive Jesus as your savior. And then you'll be able to deal with the, the, the forgiveness that you need to find. And you will process the, the bitterness that you're starting to feel. And uh, what happened was God moved and my uncle believed and he confessed that he had accepted Jesus as his savior. And he began to process that anger and bitterness and, and, and hard, hardness of heart that was coming into his life. So two days ago when he passed away, we could actually celebrate that he's now with his brother in heaven. Now I say that to you because when we sing a song like we just sang, that Jesus has overcome death, we are talking about something so significant, so important, because it affects every relationship, every family, every person. And the only way that you can have what you really want which is that eternal family is in Jesus Christ. Amen. It's the only way that you can have what your soul's really longing for. What my dad's brother really wanted was to spend more time with his brother. And now he gets to spend eternity with him because of Jesus. Now we need to understand the gospel is not just an offer to people. It's actually the hope of everything they're dreaming of. It's not just a simple thing. It's, it's actually everything. And so that relates very directly to the message I want to speak about because I want you to see the house that God built for David this morning. So I'm going to start from Haggai 1 verse 1. Haggai 1 verse 1. And I'm going to read 11 verses. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while... His, while this house lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. 
And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Wow. What a passage of scripture. I'm going to pray and then we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, help us to see something in your word today that changes the way we see everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I should have saved this passage for when we do fundraising for a church building. I mean, obviously, this is what this passage is for. It says, how can you be working on your fine paneled houses while God's house lies in ruins? And it challenges God's people to the core of what they're doing with their lives. And God says, I'm not pleased because each of you is busy with your own house. You're busy sorting out your own lives to make them comfortable for yourselves. And you're not concerned with the house of God. It, the temple was in ruins at that time and the people were supposed to be rebuilding it, I guess. And God said, actually, I'm, I'm not only unimpressed with your value system, I'm going to oppose it. So you put money in your pockets and you arrive where you were going and the money fell through a hole in your pocket. You work hard and the ground doesn't produce food. There's no rain when you need rain. God is being so mean. I mean, He is seriously limiting their lives. This isn't, this isn't simple stuff. God's actually literally speaking about droughts and, and all kinds of areas of their lives. The, the grain, the new wine, the oil, nothing's flowing. Nothing's working. Why? Well, what it tells me, it's a really powerful passage because it conveys that God cares about our priorities. We actually aren't that independent as we think we are. You aren't that free as you think you are to just do as you choose. Right. You start working on your project and it's not the project God wants you to prioritize. Things can go rough. That's what this passage tells me. He chastises those who are chasing the wrong things and he frustrates them in their agendas. And it's interesting that it's a kind of a global thing that all the people have it wrong. Because the word is like, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, so he's being, gen he's being very general, these people, all of them, say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. So he's like, they know they're supposed to prioritize God's kingdom and his house. And they say, no, just not now. Don't, don't bother me now. Just, just let me go back and, you know, sort this other thing out first. First I'll fix this and then God, I'll give you my life. First, I'll get my stuff in order and then I'll see, I'll serve you, God, once I've got all of this right. Once I have enough for me, God, I'll give you my spare change. That's basically what they were saying. And God says, actually, you should be going and gathering building materials for my house. And so he says to them, you're living in fine paneled houses. My house is a mess. And now you have all kinds of problems in your life as a result of these wrong priorities. And somewhere he said, in verse 8, go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So that's, um, 
That's a scripture that I really, I mean, I'm sure we could use if we were doing a building project. It would definitely be like a nice emotional manipulation pressure. Have you really thought about your priorities? Have you really given God the most? Or did you spend more on your own house than on the house of God? I mean, seriously, those thoughts should cross our minds because it's in the Word of God. I mean, when our church in South Africa was building, I thought about my bond and the amount of money I was spending buying myself a house. And I thought about how much debt I was in and whether my bond had tied me up to the point that I couldn't be generous. And then I extended my bond and gave money to the church from the bank. It isn't even my money. It's crazy, isn't it? But the thing is, God was faithful because He saw that I did in fact want to build His house. And I did in fact consider whether I was building my house too much at the expense of His house. So, anyway, don't be nervous. I'm not going to ask you for a big donation. They <laughs> say, the Gospel is, is, is free, you know, salvation is free. It costs you nothing except you pay with your life. Um, we don't want your money, we actually want your whole life, not for us, but for God. So the counter example that I want to give to this passage is David. And I have to confess that David is my favorite Bible character. I, I just, it hit me recently, you know, who's your favorite character in the Bible? You know, some people it's Ruth, some people, you know, for me it's David. I know it's supposed to be Jesus. I know that... You know, Jesus is the answer to the question, any question. But in this case, I identify more with David than with Jesus. That's the reality. I guess I'm saying I'm a lot more like David than I am like Jesus. And I, I don't know if you can make the opposite claim and say you're a lot more like Jesus than David. You're probably lying. What I like about David is he was the most passionate for God and the most imperfect of saints. It's what I love about the character that we read. David was so passionate for God and he was so imperfect at the same time. He's a man after God's own heart and yet a flawed man who failed many times in many ways. He was a worshipper. We know him for writing so many psalms and we read those psalms and we can see David the worshipper. But he was also a murderer and an adulterer. You've got to think about this guy for a bit, because there's nobody so bad that they can't relate to David. There's nobody so good that they can't relate to David. A worshipper and a murderer. It's like the best of the passion we should have and the worst of the mistakes we can make. There's this guy. Anyway, so that's, the, that's who we're listening to and talking about for a moment. And I want to read from 1 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17 verse 1 says, Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. So what has happened is, for a while the Philistines had the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was that box that had the supposedly the stone tablets from Moses, which was the law, but actually what was significant was that the ark represented the presence of God. God chose to manifest His presence in a way in association with the ark, so that His people could 
take God with them when they traveled through the wilderness, wherever they were journeying before they fully settled. But along the way, the ark had been captured by the Philistines, and then the Philistines didn't fare well because they got all kinds of diseases, and so they, they got rid of the ark. David is now a while later, after they had the ark somewhere on the side, they've brought it back to Jerusalem, and they've parked the ark back, at, back home in headquarters, but there's no temple around it, so it's like under a tarpaulin. It's just there. It's the presence of God living in a little shabby tent. This is the picture David has. He says, I'm living in a house of cedar, which is a fancy house, and God is staying in a tent. So he says to Nathan, this is not right. Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. Interesting. So David has it in his heart to build God a dwelling place, a temple for the ark. And, uh, and Nathan says, do whatever's in your heart. Now that is the right way to follow God is I've got something that seems to be a good idea. I can just start moving towards it. God will be good enough to direct you if it's wrong. So Nathan says, look at his proactive, positive response. Do whatever is in your heart. But God is still in control because he comes to Nathan and says to Nathan, actually, I don't want David to build me a house. And so Nathan, he says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. God goes on, he says, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I've gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone, and have cut off all your enemies from you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they may dwell, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. Love it. It's like, when did I complain that, it was, that I was roughing it, camping with Israel? I went from place to place, tent to tent. And I journeyed with you through wherever you went. And I never said to the judges that I don't have a house of cedar and you need to build me a better house. What an incredible God! That He would go with us in the journey and not even care about the quality of the accommodation. That is amazing. And God says, and in fact, I don't want you to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. I don't know if we can understand a God who is so condescending and gracious and humble and blessing. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, 
that means when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, meaning Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is a little confusing. It's a bit hard to wonder what God really wants because, you know, first we read a scripture that's further in the future than this one where God's telling his people Judah that his house is in ruins and they should be rebuilding it. But here much earlier, David wants to build him a house and he says, you're not going to build me a house. And uh, I'm going to build you a house, in fact. And, uh, and then later we learn that it was the descendant of David, Solomon, who would build the temple. And Solomon was chosen by God and God then went ahead and built the temple for God. I see something here. Um, sometimes we want to please God. We're not even sure what he wants of us. David was really sure God wanted him to build the temple. It seemed like a good idea, but he was wrong. God didn't want David to build the temple. But what I see here, looking at what God said to David and how God later accused the people of Judah through the prophet Haggai, is that God didn't want David to build the temple, but God wanted David to want to build the temple. You get it? God didn't want David to build the temple, but God wanted David to want to build the temple. So he's very pleased with David for putting God first. But God said, actually, the way I've planned things is that I'm actually going to build your house. And he starts speaking about David's legacy. You see, David was concerned with how he would leave things right that he would have served God and given God glory and he was putting his own future second and saying I'm going to build the temple I'm not so much concerned with my offspring and God says well actually you're not going to build the temple and one of your offspring is going to build the temple and I will make that legacy for you I will build your house and through this text we actually see God speaks not only of Solomon, but he's speaking of Jesus. He says things that can only be about Jesus and can't possibly be about Solomon. It says, he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, the son of God, Jesus. And it says, I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. So this son, this descendant of David is going to be on a throne forever in the house of God forever and he's the one that's going to build that house. Well, some of the lessons I can draw out of both of these passages is that um, God's house is more important than yours and also that God builds his house and you don't. There are two kinds of houses being referred to. David lived in a fine paneled house built by human 
hands. That's the first kind of house you can build. It's equivalent to the temple that Solomon built. Solomon was going to build a very snazzy uh, mega church building for the ark to go inside, like the Crystal Cathedral. I don't know. It was going to be an awesome temple. Not quite as awesome as Solomon's own palace, mind you. Just like any good prosperity preacher. So, there's, there's Solomon. He gets the task of building an earthly building. David, he was also living in a house made of cedar. There's two kinds of houses. David lived in a fine paneled house built by human hands. But God built David's legacy. That's the other house. When God said, I will build a house for you. He said, I'm going to take care of your descendants. I'm going to walk in covenant with them. And ultimately one of them is going to build the real house for me. Solomon built God a temple, but God builds the eternal dwelling. The house God built for David is God's house that Jesus is building. It's an eternal dwelling and a place where we are actually all going to be together. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. That was his mission. He said, in my father's house there are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's basically saying that there's a house that's being built. He's building it. I find it so interesting how David looked at a, a physical house and he was concerned that he was living comfortably and the ark was under a tent. God didn't care at all whether he was under a tent or not. And Solomon later built the temple, and I think God didn't really care that much for the brick and mortar. It wasn't that different to God than a tent. But God comes in this incredible grace, and He sees David's desire to put God's house first, to build Him a place for His presence. And, and God says, no, I want a man of peace to do that, not a man of war. Later, there's other texts that show us David had shed too much blood in his life and God didn't want him to build the temple. But God, like he spoke to Abraham in that covenant, he says to David, I'm going to make a name for you. I'm going to build a legacy for you. I'm going to work through the generations. When I think about what God has done in my family and I think about gathering my sons together for my mom to see all her descendants. I think the only hope of any of that having any meaning or any lasting existence is if I understand that it's God who must build the house. If God isn't building the house of my life, then whatever I'm building is just temporary. Where is David's fine paneled house that he lived in? It's gone. Where is the temple that Solomon built? It's gone. What happened in AD 70 in Jerusalem? That temple got destroyed. Why? Because there is a far, far greater house that is being built. It's the house that God built for David. It's the house that God built through Jesus. It's the house that has many rooms in it and God is preparing a place for us. So in wrapping up, this message. 
God himself is building this eternal dwelling. What do you want? I mean, in the Haggai passage we read, twice God says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. And then he speaks about what people are doing. And then he speaks about his, the temple. What he's really saying is, are you building, trying to build something out of the stuff of earth for yourself? Are you trying to build a reputation or a legacy? Are you worried about how the generations after you will be respected or sustained on earth? And God says to David, who said, I want to build your house. God says, I'm going to do all of that for you. I will build your house. I'm going to make your name secure. I'm going to give you status and reputation. I'm going to build you a lasting house. And your descendants will build an eternal dwelling. And then he speaks of Jesus, who is the offspring of David. So consider your ways. Do you want a legacy, a name, something that lasts Put it in your heart to build God's house. Do what he allows you to do. In other words, not everybody gets to do everything. David wanted to build a temple. God said, no, Solomon can build a temple. God didn't much bother either way with what a temple was anyway. He was happy to live in a tent and go with his people. See, what mattered to God was that he was with his people. He was with them as they journeyed through the wilderness, even though he lived in a tent. And I want my life to be like that with God. It doesn't matter what the quality of the shack I'm living in is like. If it's a great cedar house like now, or if it's a house with no electricity, that shouldn't change my life. What changes my life is knowing that my dad and his brother are together now in heaven. What changes my life is knowing that I will see my children's children if God builds the legacy of my lineage, even if I die. And that's what God said to David, you're going to die, but I'm going to carry on blessing you. I'm going to carry on taking care of everything that you are wanting, everything you wanted to achieve in this life, everything that was supposed to last forever. God says, I'll build that for you. I'll build that house for you. And he does that in his son, Jesus. So that's my message to you this morning is, what are you looking for? What, is, what do you want? Do you want all of those things that last and last and last, then you get them when you put God first in your life. When you say, God, you're the one I'm going to rely on to build everything for me. I want to do everything I can for God. I want to build a better church. I want to invest into people's lives. I want to build excellence in projects that I do but, but none of it matters if it's for me it only matters if I'm saying God this is for your glory and then God comes and says then I will do this for you I will make your name great and you never have to worry again about how we find fame or how we find success or how we find legacy something that really has meaning and value and transcends generations and every family wants that, even in a society like Madagascar, where family is so important, and yet it ends at death if you don't have Jesus. Yeah. It is all broken down like the temple Solomon built, or the temple in Jerusalem in 8070. It's destroyed if you don't have Jesus. You must let God build you a house. You must let God build you a house. You understand that? Let's stand.